This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This week we're talking about the new Aaron Sorkin film, Trial of the Chicago 7, which opened on Netflix this past weekend. Of course, it's about the 1969 trial of leaders of the anti-war movement, including Tom Hayden, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and Rennie Davis. And we have Rennie Davis as a guest. He was the New Left's most talented organizer. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, Mike Davis. Climate change is bringing extinction events to native land cover around the world, and extreme fires are one of the main forces bringing this apocalypse. That's what Mike Davis argues in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Mike, of course, is an activist and author of many award-winning books, including City of Quartz and Ecology of Fear, And most recently, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. We are co-authors on that one. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, California, of course, these past few months has had a fire season unprecedented in recorded history. But one of the things I learned when I first moved to L.A. was that fires in the hills around the city are not really disasters. They are part of a cycle of natural regeneration. The chaparral hillsides and the wonderful California oak woodlands have been burning intermittently, probably for millennia. And the heat of the fires sets off a process by which the landscape is renewed over the course of a few decades. But you say that's not true of what's been happening in the last few years in California. For example, in the Joshua Tree forests. Yes, uh an awful lot of California's Mediterranean climate plant communities are adapted and even require fire. But they're adapted too far on a scale where, for instance, chaparral regenerates if it's burnt every 20 to 50 years. Coastal sage scrub, 
maybe 12 to, to 20 years. That's some measure of what the fire frequency was uh, before conquest. But we're now seeing fire transforming landscapes uh, where plants aren't adapted to fire or to the current fire frequency. And the Eastern Mojave is, is an example of this. Now, if you're like Hunter Thompson, you're racing to Vegas, but you blow a tire about 20 miles from the Nevada state line, and you pull off on a road called SEMA Road, if you were to continue driving on that, you enter into one of the most magical forests in North America, a forest composed of centuries-old Joshua trees, some of which are 40 to 50 feet high. I've been there many, many times and never ceased to be amazed by this forest. In August, it burnt down. Joshua trees are not fire adapted. And as the naturalist for the National Preserve explained to reporters, uh, the Joshua trees won't go back. This is, in fact, an extinction event. But it wasn't just fire that did it. What enabled the fire and what profits from the fire is an invasive grass called red brome. And red bromes appeared in the desert now and then in wet years. But it's recently created a continuous understory to uh, the Joshua's. And that was responsible for the fire. And the factor that all naturalists and fire scientists give enormous importance to, but is almost totally underlooked in public discussion of our catastrophic fires, is the role of these invasive plants, particularly the annual grasses that belong to the Bromus family or tribe, is actually officially called red brome, ripgut brome, and cheatgrass. They've been with us for a very long time, since the 1880s at least, but extreme heat and increasing fire frequency have suddenly energized them on an unprecedented scale, invading ecosystems where their role has been minor or actually un un unknown previously, including the mixed forest of Northern California. And this is part of a worldwide phenomenon of the fire-driven transformation and replacement of, of ecosystems abetted by invasive plants. I don't know about the west side of LA or anywhere in LA, but some idiot in my neighborhood decided to decorate his yard with pompous grass. It's now spread all over the neighborhood. It blocks sidewalks. Nobody seems to pay any attention to it, but it burns like a torch. And it is the major invasive species responsible in the Iberian Peninsula for these deadly fires we've seen for the last five years in, in Spain and Iberia. So this is an incredibly important phenomenon. Now, there's one thing I don't understand about these invasive grasses, devil weeds, you call them, are, are flourishing. We're having, in California anyway, lots of other places too, a historically unprecedented drought. I, I would have thought the grasses can't flourish, can't would die out in a decades-long drought. This is particularly true of, of say, a lot of native grasses, uh, which sprout in the, uh, the spring. These invasive grasses 
sprout in the winter. They're a cool season plant. But what's actually happening in California is a combination of epic drought and epic rainfall years. And because of the extreme heat in this, this summer, you can have, uh, say, above normal 20th century average rainfall in a year. And it produces incredible displays of wildflowers in the early spring. But with the furnace-like heats that have now become typical in our summers, I mean, my God, 121 degrees in uh, the San Fernando Valley a month or so ago. These dry out. Soil moisture uh, evaporates. Plant moisture. This is a a new kind of drought that uh, climatologists sometimes call a hot drought rather than a dry drought. So despite the beautiful, humid spring, by the end of the summer, given immense amount of biomass of grasses and other plants ready to burn. Now, the bromes in particular have incredible Darwinian edge over native plants. They can burn every two, three, four years. They help increase fire frequency, which prevents the reestablishment and regeneration of native plants They also burn at twice the temperature, producing far more intense fires that volatilize soil chemicals essential to native plants. They change the microbial communities uh, of the soil. I mean, they're armored in about, oh, and they thrive on pollution. They love smog. Uh, That's how they get (laughs) nitrogen. They're much more effective uh, at using increased carbon dioxide as fertilizers. So in about a dozen different ways, these have really become nightmare weeds. And the increased fire frequency is something that basically native vegetation has enormous difficulty adjusting to. And it means the gradual replacement of native vegetation and some of the most iconic and beloved landscapes in California by these annual uh, grasslands. An example is the coastal sage shrub, scrub, uh, forgive me, uh, 70% of which has now been replaced by invasive plants. So we've been talking here about the deserts, the grassland, the coastal scrub, but people mostly know about these immense unprecedented fires in the forests. And I thought the worst of these weeds required direct sunlight and could not grow where the forests had closed canopies that left the ground in deep shade? Well, the wet coastal forests, the redwoods, still are pretty much immune to invasive grasses. But the mixed forests of conifers and and, and oak, for instance, in the Mendocino National Forest or in the Sierra foothills, where we've seen incredible fire tragedies like the destruction of the town of Paradise or the fire that burned into a neighborhood of the city of Santa Rosa. These areas uh, have suffered from two things. One has been over the last 10 or 15 years, drought has led to bark beetle infestations of trees and killed over 150 million trees. 100 million of those died alone in the drought of the last decade. But oaks, are experiencing their own pandemic 
this time a, a fungal creature which has killed the hundreds of thousands of oaks. And of course these dead trees are almost perfect fuels. And so after fires you have, you know, areas which the grass then and other uh, weeds colonize. And because of the feedback with, you know, fire, fire frequency increases. But it's actually turned out that previous uh, common sense about forest was wrong. They can also invade uh, closed canopy forests closer to the state. So what's happening here is a wholesale transformation of the Californian landscape and ecosystems. And if you look at it from a very large scale, what's happening, and this is happening in the same latitudes all around the world, is the southern edges of the temperate climates, meaning Southern California, for instance, are becoming more arid and potentially more desert-like, while on the northern end, the Mediterranean climate zone is becoming more like what Southern California has been historically with, with grasslands replacing uh, trees. This amounts to a reorganization of the Earth's biota on an absolutely incredible and quite catastrophic scale. We've been talking mostly about natural processes here, but there's another huge problem. People building houses and housing developments in places like the Sierra foothills where there never was uh, housing before. They like getting away from big city pollution and noise and moving closer to nature where the deer and the antelope play. You call this in The Nation magazine insane. Why? Well, there's two kinds of migration to rural areas. One are average people, rent refugees, who just can't afford housing costs, even in the, the Central Valley, moving to places like Paradise, or retired couples who just want a little piece of California beauty. But they're not really the problem. What's driving rural gentrification is wealth from the coast. And suddenly areas that were really the backwoods, like eastern San Diego County when I grew up, where I grew up, and people used to mock as Appalachia, is now every hilltop has a mansion on top of it. And when a thousand of these large homes burnt in 2003, they were rebuilt even larger. And a lot of this is second homes or weekend homes. Some are, are permanent. But the scale of it is, is extraordinary. Now, fire scientists talk about the wildland fire interface. And this describes two kinds of conditions. One is when suburbs are built adjacent to wild areas and fire ecologies. The other, which is characteristic of the rural gentrification I'm talking about, is where they're intermixed with forest and brush. Exurbanization is also a social process driven not only by people's high amenity values like wineries and forest lakes and fantastic view lots. The counties in which people are moving have almost without exception uh, less than 1% black populations. 
this is a form of white flight, an escape from the diversity of our metropolitan areas to a totally individual, fortified life, you know, lifestyle in, in the mountains and places that also have exotic local histories. How much of this has occurred? Well, more than half of the new homes built in California last generation have been built in the Wildland Fire Interface. And Bloomberg Business Week did a study a couple of years ago. They predicted in California we would build another million homes Ugh. in these areas. Here in San Diego, kind of where I live, there's 10,000 new homes about to begin construction in what are officially very high or extreme fire danger areas that developers have managed to push through. You talked about the, this is a form of white flight of uh, people leaving cities which are full of immigrants and people of color and let us also say democratic voters. Is it true that the white flight people out there in the, what we used to call the backcountry, think of fire protection regulations as a big government taking away your freedom. That's exactly true. Now, of course, there's some examples of liberal exurbanism, like in Mendocino County. Mendocino County, by the way, is 0.7% African-American. But in the Sierra Foothills, in eastern San Diego County, in the foothills of western Riverside County, uh, you're talking about hardcore Trump land where people are against government and almost everything except the fire protection they believe is their divine right. An example of the kind of politics that emerge in these areas is the Duncan Hunter dynasty of father and son who represent the gentrified backcountry of San Diego County and are amongst the most, had been amongst the most, now the I should say, point out that Duncan Hunter Jr. is on his way to federal prison. But for <laughs> the 30 you. years or so they were in power, they opposed regulation of backcountry development and protection of native species, endangered species, with the same kind of fanaticism that they opposed immigration or affirmative action. Uh, one, one final topic. You suggest in The Nation that the large-scale ecological transformations being brought by wildfires are not historically unique. Something similar seems to have happened in the middle of the 20th century in a few places. Well, the strategic bombing of Europe became a subject of intense interest amongst naturalists, both during the war, but particularly after the war. And Berlin became the most important laboratory, because here the city, about a third of the city had been reduced to just sheer rubble. So the question arose of what kind of plant secession would happen. And it was assumed in the beginning that the natural history of uh, the Berlin area would resume with oaks and shrubs and, and plants that were native to the area when the, the city was founded. That didn't happen at all. What instead happened was something that some of the people involved in research called the emergence of a second nature. These were plants adapted to the 
transformed soil conditions of the city, all the pulverized bricks and pollutes. And it turns out that these plants in general had evolved on moraines in the Pleistocene, on the edges of glaciers. They were compared to the plants that developed on lava flows. And one of those plants is quite common in Los Angeles. You'll see it growing out of cracks and parking lots and edges of, of freeways, any kind of disturbed landscape. It's called the tree of heaven. It was a rare ornamental imported from China to Europe and then California in the late 19th century. But it turns out to be the super tree weed of, uh, of all time. And uh, people should look it up and then go out and see if they can identify it. But our cities are also being overwhelmed by weeds that are almost impossible to exterminate. And let me just end on this fact. Right now, Diane Feinstein, with the support of Governor Newsom, is pushing a bill for more forest clearance and cutting down uh, shrubs, cutting down native chaparral. The thing is, this is a little good because native the invasive grasses and other weeds immediately invade. And they are almost inexterminable. You can go online, California invasive plants, and find out how difficult, even impossible it is uh, to get rid of these things, even if you burn them down annually and constantly trimming them. Unless you're going to hand pull, pull them out of the ground, uh, they're going to stay there. And they help establish then the new high fire frequency, which in turn promotes their own growth and further destruction of native plants. Mike Davis, his article, Fire in the Anthropocene, is featured in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Read it online at thenation.com. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure, John, as always. One programming note, you can join the nation's first ever festival taking place virtually on November 18th through 21st. Four days of wide-ranging conversations, briefing sessions, and interviews coming in the wake of the most critical election of our lives. It features Bernie Sanders, Naomi Klein, Michael Bennett, Rick Steves, Alicia Garza, and many more. The Nation Festival, November 18th to 21st. Tickets are on sale now at thenation.com slash nationfestival. That's thenation.com slash nationfestival, one word. This week we're talking about the new Aaron Sorkin film, Trial of the Chicago 7, which opened on Netflix this past weekend. Of course, it's about the 1969 trial of leaders of the anti-war movement, including Tom Hayden, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and Rennie Davis, who joins us now. It's a pleasure to say, Rennie Davis, welcome to the program. Yeah, well, thanks, John. My pleasure. Well, the movie stars... Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby. You are played by an English actor named Alex Sharp, and your attorney, Bill Kunstler, is played by a very famous English actor, Mark Rylance. The story begins in 1969, when one of the first things the Nixon administration did after he took office was to indict you 
and seven other people for conspiring to cross state lines to incite a riot at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August 1968. Did you conspire with Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Dave Dellinger, John Freund, Lee Weiner, and Bobby Seale to cross state lines to incite a riot at the DNC in Chicago in 68? Abby had a joke for everything. And his response to that was, we couldn't agree on lunch. <laughs> so to give you a little context to it, this was the law that was passed when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And, you know, hundred cities went up in riots. The, the Congress itself was surrounded by, by armed troops. I mean, it was, it was really, uh, it was a time when the lawmakers started to move into, well, it's the leaders, you know, they're the cause of everything. <laughs> so a, they passed a law and you, you really need to understand that a riot was defined as an assembly of three or more people, one of whom violated or threatened to violate a law. And so if, if you had used interstate commerce, you crossed the state line and you had the intention, what had, what had to do with what you wrote or what you said, okay, to incite a riot that might have happened, you know, three years after you spoke, but all it was was three people, one of whom had a clenched fist raised in the air. You could go to jail for five years. And we were charged with conspiracy to do this. That meant added another five years to our possible sentence. So what did you do about the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August 1968? I guess there wasn't really an issue about going, but, you know, I was the coordinator of a, really the largest coalition of anti-war and civil rights organizations, not just of that time, but of all times in the country. You know, we had 150 national organizations and coalition. Martin Luther King was in our coalition. And, you know, I fully expected to bring 500,000 people to Chicago. Chicago at that time was holding its Democratic Convention and they were the prosecutor of this war in Vietnam. I mean, Mayor Daley was tough. I knew Mayor Daley. You know, I've been a community organizer in Chicago beforehand, but the idea that, you know, kind of the right to petition the government would just be thrown out the window by denying permits, basically. So we went anyway, and, uh, you know, uh, mostly there, our numbers obviously were reduced. It was mostly young people with a lot of courage. We knew kind of what we were going into. I mean, I had 4,000 marshals that were pretty, I mean, we were actually very well organized in this chaos. And we had 1,000 medics ready, and, but I don't think any of us were quite prepared. You know, when, when 11 o'clock came to the curfew in the park where we were staying, you know, the police assembled, tear gas was fired, and in they came clubbing and beating. And it, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't just that, we were beaten as demonstrators. I mean, newsmen that you would, everybody knew, you know, where they were represented CBS, the, the major networks. You know, I watched people sitting on their front porch, you know, just basically trying to see what was going on and get clubbed and beaten on their front porch, you know, people who lived in Chicago. And it was an event that uh, almost had no equal in terms of television ratings, you could say, you know, I mean, we were, 
we were watched by more people on television than was the first man landing on the moon. And it shifted the entire opinion of the country about the Vietnam War. There was actually a Gallup poll taken two weeks before the convention that showed a majority of the country supported their government in a, in a war. And two weeks after that convention, the same Gallup poll showed a majority of the American people now supported our position to get out. Well, I'm especially interested in the way this story is told in the Aaron Sorkin film, partly because I wrote a book about the trial. It's called Conspiracy in the Streets, The Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago 7. In the book, I describe you as the new left's most talented organizer. I, I say you did most of the real organizing for the protests at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968, but somehow that's not in the movie Aaron Sorkin portrays you as a kind of a nerdy guy worried that his girlfriend's parents will find out that he's a radical and an activist. I I think my account is more accurate than Aaron Sorkin's, don't you? Yeah, but like 100%. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know what to say, you know. I mean, to maybe give him some some slack, you know. He I mean, he was 8 years old when the trial of the Chicago 7 was happening. You know, and he decided to basically that his own imagination would be the best drama. Uh, there was actually a Hollywood movie that was being planned during the trial. And uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman was playing my role. And he came to the courtroom pretty much every day, you know. And we spoke. And, you know, he was just very intent on understanding who we were and what we really thought and so forth. And while that film never got produced, it certainly suggested an intelligent way that anyone trying to make a, a story, a movie on this trial, you know, would have been better served really just to spend some time with us first and to really get to know what, it might seem hard to imagine that there's something more dramatic than your own imagination, but <laughs> the trial of the Chicago 8, which became 7, really was just, as a drama, was impeccable. Well, of course, the Aaron Sorkin film is mostly a courtroom drama. And in the film, the defendants decide that only one of you will testify in the trial, and you all pick Abby Hoffman. But in reality, there was a second defendant who testified, you. Your testimony, which, you know, is reprinted in this book of mine, took most of a week. It's still very powerful and moving. You talked about your trip to Vietnam in 1967. Tell us about that testimony that you provided in the courtroom that's missing from the Aaron Sorkin film. Well, it was our one opportunity that we had as defendants to actually speak to the jury about why we really actually came to Chicago. You know, I was the, the lead organizer and coordinator of the whole coalition that came. And so uh, on this particular trip to Vietnam, I mean, it's a real story. I mean, a woman came up to me and gave me a, just, it looks like about a, a tennis ball size. You know, it was an anti-personnel weapon. There were 640 of these little bomblets in, in a container. And basically this woman had lost every single person in her family because of this particular bomb. And she gave it to me. This was the kind of anti-personnel weapon that was dropped by American planes, by the thousands, by the what, millions? Yeah, it was, a, it was the number one weapon used in North Vietnam. 
And, you know, our position as a country was that we were only uh, attacking steel and concrete. But this bomb, you know, I explained to the jury that if this bomb went off right now, everyone here would die. But this jury, the room would be intact. We could still have another trial on the, on the trial of the Vietnam War. The reason is, is that uh, it'll send, send pellets into the air. If one hits your leg, it would ricochet up your leg and you would die slow bleeding to death. This is the, you know, this was the horror. You know, I think one of the things, you know, it was the three days of testimony and the jury was just in rapt attention. I mean, it really was, you know, I mean, we, we, we had people on the jury who just wouldn't buy anything that we would say, but, you know, I think the judge was so upset because I was being effective with the jury that I received, I don't know, two months and two years and six months in contempt of court just for testifying, you know. So your attorneys tried to introduce an exhibit as evidence in the trial uh, after your testimony, the, this American anti-personnel bomb that you had brought back from Vietnam. And the government prosecutor, Thomas Foran, objected to introducing this as evidence on the grounds that, now I'm quoting here from the transcript, quote, the Vietnamese war has nothing to do with the charges brought in this indictment, close quote. Uh, how did Judge Hoffman rule on this objection? He ruled the same way he ruled on every single thing that the prosecutor proposed. Anything that came from the prosecutor was accepted. Anything that came from the defense in five and a half months was denied. You know, I'm not trying to toot my horn at all. You know, I was just, you know, I knew about Vietnam. I, I brought back American prisoners of war from North Vietnam. You know, actually, I'll tell you a story I've never really shared before. I was in a bomb shelter in North Vietnam where, where we were in utter blackness while we could hear American, you know, bombs going off in Hanoi. Okay, and basically they were trying to, you know, our Vietnamese hosts were trying to, you know, I guess entertain us or something. So they read news accounts, and and in that in the news accounts of one day, they they announced that uh, the Democratic Party was holding its convention in Chicago. And they said, "Oh, aren't you from Chicago?" <laughs> so so that's actually it was there that I learned about the the Democratic Convention. It was there that I made the decision, I am going to Chicago. Now, that would have been an interesting piece of drama in the film, in my opinion. Yeah. Of course, the emotional peak of the trial came when the judge ordered Bobby Seale bound and gagged for demanding the right to represent himself. That's portrayed very vividly in, in the movie. What was it like for you to be in the courtroom sitting next to a black man in chains with a gag in his mouth. This didn't just happen for an hour. This went on for three, two or three or more days. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it was four days, actually, that it proceeded. Each day got more intense. You know, the first day, he could speak through his gauze easily. I demand my constitutional right to represent myself. And the jury would hear it. So the marshals each day were basically using greater force to put more gauze into his mouth. And it was just mind-blowing, you know. But what, you know, it didn't matter what they did. He could still be heard by the jury. The important thing, honestly, John, is that, which is not mentioned in the movie, 
is he was also heard in Africa and Europe and South America and, and Asia and Canada and everywhere in the United States. I mean, it was a global event. A black man chained and gagged in an American courtroom because he couldn't represent himself. It would have been possible to include that in the movie, but it wasn't. So this is a movie that has a lot of flaws. Do you recommend that people should see it anyway? I do. You know, I'm watching people send me Facebook posts and, you know, give me calls and things like that. And uh, even some people who people who are really close to the trial are pretty much aghast and, you know, might recommend to boycott the movie. But the fact is, is that this was an event that touched so many people's lives. And, and so the movie stirs up all those memories. And, uh, and people who, in a way, know better, just you know, let me know, boy, I just love the movie. <laughs> so, so my view is that DreamWorks is sort of known for its wizardry, you know. You have to admit the timing was magical. I mean, there's so many similarities between 1968 and here we are in in an election where some people are panicking. It might be the last election we ever have and everyone is worried, you know, and here's a a group of people supported by millions and millions of people who basically just say, no, we're going to put the government on trial. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a timely message, and, and its perfection is just, you know, fabulous. So, yeah, all this happened more than 50 years ago, but yet it seems like today, you know, it's, it, it does have uh, some connections. And, of course, there's a connection not just to the present but to the future because we're all very anxious about what's going to happen after— let us assume Biden takes office on on uh, January twentieth, and I wonder what your thoughts are about this. Well, I'm I'm working with a group of people who don't seem to have any despair, depression, and are 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 filled with hope. But they're taking a long view, and that's how they got there. They're really dedicated to creating the future of the human race. And they, uh, they it's, they're, they're not psychic, but they do have a profound ability to just apply some common sense. If you think about what's coming, I mean, we all want to see a vaccine and everything go back to normal. But uh, the fact is, is that it really is warming up. And, and as it warms up, we're going to see increasing droughts. And as we see increasing droughts, we're going to see an acceleration of uh, the, the depletion of aquifers. The aquifer depletion is maybe the biggest thing that's going to be facing all of us because that's where food chains, distribution chains begin to snap. And, I've, you know, we envision a level of migration uh, from certain parts of the world where, you know, people have farmed for a thousand years successfully. Suddenly you just have to choose, you're going to die or you're going to move. And so it's not a small thing. I'm talking about Central America, the, the Sudan, the parts of Africa, the Middle East, part, large parts of Asia. Are, we're going to see hundreds and hundreds of millions of people moving across international borders. And it's going to be a really a time like no other. So we're taking the view that uh, let's, let's really cut the Gordian knot 
and let, let's create a new way of living on Earth. So our, our vision actually is we're basically creating a network of intentional communities that want to live and thrive and grow uh, into a network for a nation, a new nation on Earth. Uh, and so it is a long view. I don't really try to bend anybody's arm as argument anymore. You know, I just say that we, we know what's coming and as, as everybody figures it out, you're welcome to join us too. Randy Davis, the New Left's most talented organizer in the 60s and still at it today. Randy, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.